0: You're listening to The Feed.
1: This is The Feed.
0: This is The Feed. The Feed. You're listening to The Feed. In Markham. In Richmond Hill. You're listening to The Feed in Vaughan. In Stouffville.
2: In Woodbridge. In Unionville.
3: You're listening to 105.9 The Region. I'm Station Manager Tina Cortez, and this is The Feed. We are York Region's only news magazine show dedicated to the issues and events that matter to all of us who live and work here. On this weekend's show, a unique fundraiser for Alzheimer's. We also learn more about podcasting and stick around for a preview of the Academy Awards. But we begin with a conversation about the Amber Alert system. Here's Galit Solomon.
4: Laura Nicole with York Regional Police, thank you so much for joining us today. Very good. Uh, so so about a, a week ago, a little over a week ago, an Amber Alert was issued right across uh, the province for a missing 11-year-old girl and it was believed that her father had abducted her and that her, her life was in danger. And sadly, the young girl was found dead at her father's uh, Brampton home. Uh, but as a result of this alert, the father was spotted by someone who heard the alert and he was arrested. Uh, what surprised many of us were really, the number of complaints that were received by 911 or, or you know, police services right across the province, including yours as well, and that's where we're going to begin our conversation. Did York Regional Police receive any uh, such complaints?
5: It, we did, unfortunately, and and certainly, you know, we never want to speak to a, a different police services investigation. Obviously, that was a Peel Regional Police incident. But mm-hmm. uh, as far as Amber Alerts go, you know, this is a very valuable tool for police services um, across across the board, and uh, something that you know we, we rely on to to help us reach the the bulk of the community um, when we have the most serious of, of cases going on. Um, so yeah, we received uh, multiple calls. As last I had checked, it was over 50 calls um, from people, and and. Again, Again, this wasn't our incident, this was not our Amber Alert that was Mm -hmm. issued, however we still were getting these complaint calls um, in regards to people essentially being upset that they received that or that they were woken up by it. Um, So that's something that's very, very shocking and concerning to hear that, you know, that's the focus for people, Um, you know, that they had potentially the chance to, you know, have information uh, to to potentially try to save, and that's the goal of these, right, is to try to save a child who's in a a very dangerous situation, you know you would think that everybody uh, across the communities would be on board with wanting to do anything they possibly could. Um, So certainly upsetting to hear that people were, you know, wishing they had not received that Amber Alert. It is,
4: yes. And, you know, one of the sentiments I heard on, on social media, uh, because obviously there were conversations out there on social media as well, was that, you know, there isn't enough education out there when it comes to Amber Alert that, uh, Alerts that people don't necessarily know or understand fully the, the significance of it. So let's, let's delve into the details of an Amber Alert. When is it issued and why?
5: Well, and I think that's a big piece of it, you're absolutely right. I think people think, oh, this is just, you know, a missing person or whatever, um, but an Amber Alert, it, it requires very, very specific criteria. So, they're not issued by the police services um, individually, they're done through the OPP um, and they're only reserved for the most severe cases. So, essentially, they're they're designed for those child abduction cases where the child is in immediate serious danger. Um, so, this is not just your typical, you know, missing person, hey, you know, there's a lot of time to play around. These are very, very serious, probably the most serious and the most urgent types of situations that police deal with. So it's something that, you know, we need the whole community to be on board.
4: Right. And, and, and you know, some of the, the sentiments that we first noticed on social media, they included things like, you know, I, I was jarred out of bed, um, uh, you know, I'm home and I'm useless anyway when I'm at home. What do you say to people who, who feel
5: that way? Well, the system is designed to reach everyone right we can't pick and choose it's mm-hmm. not as if you can say oh well, let's somehow avoid sending it to the people who are sleeping i mean it has to go out to everyone and that's that's the way that um you know it's going to be the most effective so you know yes there might be people who receive this that that are not able to assist in any way um but recognize that for us to reach the people who might be able to uh, we have to be able to reach everyone that's just the way that the system um is going to be the most effective and uh, and again i think you know it's 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 concerning to see people that focused on themselves. When you know, when there's a child in a situation that would warrant an Amber Alert, um, we all should be thinking about that child and that family. To 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 put it you know sort of bluntly, that that should be our focus: is what that family and what that child might be going through.
4: You know, it's interesting. I shared uh, a story that was published by um, you know a prominent um, Canadian publication, and, and in it, one of the editors from the publications w- w- was quite upset and used very strong language. Towards people who were complaining, Um, and one of the responses I got was that, um, you know, in terms of of education and and getting the word out there, the police services are not doing enough to get the word out there. How do you respond to that? Because, you know, frankly, I don't feel that way. I am I'm very aware of the efforts by police to ensure that people are aware of what Amber Alerts are all about. But how do you respond to somebody who says the police services aren't doing enough?
5: Um, well, and again, it is it is just one small piece of of a very large puzzle. It's very rarely used, fortunately, right? This is not something I, I believe, in my experience uh, over the years of of being in this role, um, our service we've only done one, so it's not as if it's a very common thing. And I think that's kind of what it is. Whether or not there's been enough education out there, um, people forget when it's not top of mind, right? We're talking about it now, but uh, if we go several years, uh, hopefully without having to issue one, people again will will get to that place where they don't remember what these are for. Um, now, if you looked at it, there is there is details within the Amber Alert that kind of indicates what exactly is going on and, and what uh, it's being used for and certainly the information is also available out there for people who want to educate themselves a little bit more about what the program is uh, and what is involved. But, uh, you know, I, I think it, again, it's one of those things where, you know, we're making it very clear right now obviously that it is only for very serious cases and I think that's a common sense element too. Like if you receive a text message or a message or something. Some type of alert like this that is going to everyone. You have to understand that the severity of of an incident to be to be able to utilize that type of sort of mass communication um, that it, that would only ever be reserved for the most serious cases and I think you know generally people people know that.
4: I'd like to conclude by speaking about, you know, the methods of communicating an Amber Alert. And and that's recently changed, obviously. You know, we've had the highway signs for a long time, um, news organizations and and through television um, methods. When a television is on, um, an Amber Alert will come on if it is, you know, if one was issued. Uh, More recently, um, it's also uh, been transferred to cell phones. Um, how important do you think it is for an Amber Alert to be distributed through as many communication methods as possible, so as many people as possible are receiving them?
5: Well, that's that's a, that's the a, the whole point of this, right? Is that you know we can do better work much faster um, when we have everyone out there with their eyes looking out for this type of thing, right? So if we're able to reach uh, a larger group, um, you're, you're able to be that much more effective and hopefully generate the tips that can help stop this. And I, I, again, I think, you know, if, if anybody puts themselves in the shoes of somebody who um, has a loved one that uh, something something has, has occurred, you know, mm-hmm. you, you want everybody out there to be watching and looking and helping, I think. And um, that's really what our community should involve. Um, and just another piece of, you know, some of the feedback that I have have seen is, that is some positive comments, but, but also with the, the element of, well, why wasn't, you know, why aren't these issued faster? Um, and just to that point, I think what I'd want to say is that you know, there's a lot of other things that are also going on um, prior to an Amber Alert being issued. So it might take some time for officers to be able to uh, get the evidence and the grounds in order to actually um, get one issued, so sometimes that takes some time, but we're still doing uh, a ton of police work and a ton of, um, you know, connecting with the the media and with the community prior to that happening, right? We're still going to be putting out those photos and still going to be um, trying to reach people as quickly as we can in in that interim period. So, um, you know, just a little bit of education on that, that, that uh, we're not sitting, waiting, doing nothing, that we're still going to be, you know, very proactive prior to that Amber Alert being issued.
4: And sorry, just as, as you mentioned, uh, I, I know I said we'd wrap up, but one more question. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. as, as you mentioned, you know, there have been obviously these negative um, comments that we just talked about, but there were also a lot of positive comments. Um, mm-hmm. and, and a lot of people on social media, for instance, posting about the fact that you can wake me up anytime when it comes to an mm-hmm. Amber Alert. Uh, what other mm-hmm. sort of sentiments have you
5: seen? Well, that's definitely the majority, right? The, the the vast majority. We're talking about you know a very small handful of complaints, whereas the majority of people, in my experience, um, have absolutely understood what exactly was going on. And even in in terms of the the complaints, you know, I think I, I like to give people the benefit of a doubt and think that there's just a little bit of lack of education on what exactly was happening. Um, I, I I think you know for the most part people people see that and and they put themselves in that place and they do exactly what you know the majority of us would be doing. And, and wanting to help and feeling and for that family and, and that child. Um, so, you know, that's obviously well the majority, and, and, you know, what we should be remembering is that most people uh, most people are good people and are trying to do the right thing.
4: Very good. Laura Nicole with York Regional Police, thank you so much for your time today. You're welcome. Anytime.
3: Recently, the province announced a new funding structure for autism services. And joining us next on the feed to discuss these changes, Suki Choi. She is services director and founder of Autism in Mind. Suki, thank you for joining us.
6: Hi, everybody.
3: Can you tell us a little bit about Autism in Mind?
6: Yes. Um, I started Autism in Mind Children's Charity back in 2011, Uh, I was a daycare owner uh, when I first met a family with three children with autism. Uh, They were on the extremely uh, low-functioning side of the spectrum, and um, it just literally shocked me. When I first met this family, uh, children were on the floor, and mom was not able to raise three kids on her own. And back then in 2011, the wait list for the government funding was about four to five years. Um, I was really shocked by the lack of support in our community and uh, decided to sell cookies at my daycare to help this family. So we basically started with just to help one family with three kids with autism. But since then, we've been helping more than 150 families in uh, York region area, and we're still growing. As As a charity, our mission is to raise awareness and acceptance in our community and challenge the social stigma of autism. And also to uh, enhance the lives of children with autism through our program and support their participation in the community. We're not only providing services in the community, but we are also actively raising awareness in the community through our campaigns and fundraising events. I think that's something that's different from other uh, organizations because we raise money to support families who are on the government wait list who are low-income families who are not able to support uh, children's service right away.
7: Can you
3: tell us a little bit briefly about some of the programs you provide?
6: Uh, Some of the programs that we offer are one-to-one intensive behavior intervention, social skills program like emotional regulation, school readiness for younger children, uh, Saturday social skills program, social skills program for older children. We also provide occupational therapy, speech therapy, physiotherapy. Um, Also, we offer free parent consultations and training and camps.
3: Now, Suki, we started this conversation about the new funding structure for autism services that the province announced. What are you hearing from parents and from families out there about these changes to services?
6: Uh, It's just extremely sad to see what the government decides to do. Our families just don't know what to do at this point because there are a lot of unknowns and uh, directions are not really clear. Um, many people who are not in the field might think that clearing the wait list sounds great, but the reality is um, like it is extremely difficult for families. With the amount that government set for the lowest income family, it's not even meeting half of what is required as treatment for children with autism. and the Our current families who are receiving funding right now, they're soon to lose more than 60% of their original treatment hours, and that's happening at the end of March.
3: So that's very soon. Is there anything that you think is going to change the government's plans um, in regards to autism services?
6: I don't think there will be a lot of changes, but we're still fighting the professionals and families that are out there to raise their voice, to uh, let them know. Um, what this is all about. Uh, the children are losing services, the children are not getting the right opportunities for their future. So we have to still see. Uh, the the protest will continue and um, uh, we are hoping to get more information from the government.
3: If our listeners want more information about Autism in Mind, where can they go?
6: They can go to www.autisminmind.org for uh, our charity information. Also, the new funding information, we have uh, um, the updates on our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.
3: Suki, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Thank you. This is The Feed on 105.9, the region, where we share stories, issues, and events from across York Region, including the 360
7: Experience afwaba explains joining me to chat today is the ceo of 360 kids clovis grant and he's going to talk to me today about the 360 experience an event that happens every year that uh, continues to grow and it continues to build awareness about youth homelessness across the country clovis thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today
0: oh this is great appreciate coming
7: let's get right into it talk to us about the 360 experience what is that about
0: the 360 Experience is actually two things in one. Number one, it's it's a fundraiser, so we are trying to raise money to support our programs. But number two, and really importantly, is awareness. Uh, there are a lot of people in York Region who actually don't realize that poverty and much less homelessness is an issue. And so uh, participating in the 360 Experience for us gives people an opportunity to understand, one, that there is an issue – and number two, to understand what that issue is, because there are uh, stereotypes, there there are stigma that's associated with being homeless. And so uh, what the experience does is really help people understand why young people become homeless and what they actually experience when you don't have a, a home to go to. I mean, we take it for granted uh, that, you know, we go to work, go to school, and there's a place we go back to. But what happens When you actually don't have that and how does that change your life? And so you do it for one night, you get to understand what it's like for somebody, a young person for whom this is uh, an ongoing issue.
7: And I love how you mentioned that there is that stigma. I know for me, whenever we think of homelessness, we have the the traditional picture that we have in mind. um, And we think of it in a more urban area, more dense area. But if you will, we can say that maybe in York region, there's a bit of a cloak. You kind of
0: you don't see it. And and that is the part of the awareness uh, because we don't see it. So we think it actually doesn't exist. But there are young people who come to our services uh, who are living in their cars. And they're coming to our drop in programs uh, to access services. There are people living in the forests There are people who are couch surfing and and really what that means is they're going um, from one friend's couch to the next uh where just to find a place to to stay and and eat and and so One of the the challenges that we we encounter is young people would not consider themselves in some of those situations homeless. And so we don't actually put a name to it. Um, But in fact, they they are homeless because there is no um, safe place for them to to go um, uh, on a regular basis. And so uh, that's partly why uh, we have to raise awareness because people, you don't see people on the streets, uh, but the homeless uh, actually exist because they're, they're going from place to place and uh, just trying to, to, uh, to find safety.
7: Right. Okay. So then tell me about how, how long this uh, 360 experience has been taking place and what actually happens on that night when somebody uh, decides to participate.
0: Okay. Uh, so this year, 2019, is our sixth year. So it's, it's been going for for. For that long. And uh, really, it was, uh, as I said, it is a fundraiser. And and what we want to do is uh, to help the community understand what it's like that they're given a a scenario that a young person really might encounter. So you may be 17 years old, and that's you, you're going to be acting that out for the night. You're 17, you live in, let's say, Richmond Hill. Uh, the only shelter that may be available to you is up in Sutton. And so what you do, the, the we all get together at 8 o'clock on the night of the event. So that would be February 28th. And then uh, as a, a group of 50 people, you're paired up. And as a pairing, you'd be given that scenario. So let's say that is your scenario. So you're given... a uh, uh, About $3 to $5, you're given two bus tickets, and you're off for the night. Wow. (laughs) And you come back at 6 a.m., and we share stories and and debrief. And so from 8 p.m. till 6 a.m., you're uh, living that scenario. So it might mean traveling from our station there in Richmond Hill and then taking a two-hour bus ride up to Sutton, and then you you get the, the you you get there and you find out that there is no shelter there are mm-hmm. no beds available because maybe somebody else had gotten there before you right. and so now you're in a situation where it's eleven o'clock eleven thirty midnight whatever and you've got no shelter mm-hmm. and the buses have stopped running wow <laughs> and you have to get back to Richmond Hill for six. So that's that's a real to life situation because there aren't a lot of services for young people and so what do you do when you're up in Sutton and it's 12 o'clock there are no buses and you know you have to go back to school in Richmond Hill the next morning so you you may hang around at a coffee shop walk around you might find um a bank teller you might uh, sort of bank atm you might you you, you get creative mm-hmm. or you can just walk just keep walking trying to stay warm and uh, by 6 a.m you might get to richmond hill or maybe you the buses will start running at say 4 or 5 a.m and then you've got your bus ticket to use so it's really up to the individual to figure out how they're going to live out that scenario and there may be other Places you go to, you might find other drop-in programs or other services that may be given as part of your script. But it's really that's what our young people would face. Yep. Um, So after that experience, and I did that last year, it Mm -hmm. was totally eye-opening. We ended up going to a park in in Richmond Hill and uh and it's 3 a.m and we're trying to stay warm it was um rainy snowy Mm -hmm. and you've got a tarp you've got a sleeping bag and yes i forgot about that you're given a tarp and a sleeping bag and that's all your protection and so imagine just trying to stay warm and i i know that it was a tough time and my mind was starting to play games and for me, this was one night, <laughs> but for our young people, this is night after night. if they don't have a friend's couch to go to. they have to always be every day, you know if they can even go to school, they have to think about what am I going to do uh, to stay warm or mm-hmm. for accommodation so so that's what the experience is about.
7: Wow, and uh, you just. It's one thing to explain it and feel it in this way. It's another to actually experience it. And 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 you even touched on it. And I was coming to ask you in terms of uh, people who have decided to take this 360 experience. What was their takeaway from this? And even with your experience, you're saying already it it started having um an emotional effect on you, a psychological effect. You started uh, you know thinking differently in terms of how to pass the time. So. Mm. If that's just with one person spending the night, imagine the young people who spend uh, countless nights.
0: Right. And for us, we know that it's going to end at 6 a.m. and then we can jump back in our vehicles. We have our credit cards. We can go grab something to eat. We don't have to be looking for where am I going to get food. Uh, But for young people, that may not be uh, the reality. The other part of the experience uh, that we we encourage people to do is then go back to work the next day. Mm. So you're up all night, and now you have to function at work the next day, and that's where I think it. Not only the nighttime experience that you you feel, but then how do you function at work? When you haven't really slept, maybe you, you were like me last year sleeping in a park and you may have gotten a couple of hours because you just are trying to stay warm. But then I, I go to work the next day having no um, no real rest. We expect our these young people to be able to go to school and function the next day. And, mm-hmm. and is it surprising that many of them don't actually finish school? Like how can you, in fact, continue your education when... This is your experience, and even if you wanted to, you just your mind is on survival. It's not on <laughs> your math homework. Yeah, that's yeah. the least of your concerns, and so that's also part of the experience that that uh, people uh, sort of get react to because they realize now, okay, I get it. Right. It is not easy for these young people, and 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 going back to the issue of stigma. This is part of the experience is helping people understand when you see that young person standing on the road or you know, if you suspect somebody is homeless, rather than judge them and, and point fingers at them and their issues, um, understand that there is a story behind why that young person is homeless. It's not that they want to be scraping by and sleeping in, at a friend's house. There is a, a reason why they're homeless. And that reason is often because there are some issues at home. And it's not always an issue pointing to them, but sometimes it's a dysfunctional family. It's parents who have uh, addictions issues, mental health issues, um, families who don't accept a young person who may come out and say they're they're gay or trans. And, and so these young people, they end up without really much choice, they end up on the street. And so when... When we see somebody who we suspect may be homeless, the the judgment really needs to stop because these aren't kids who want to be in this situation. And and as a society, we need to do better by them and and provide them the help and not the finger pointing.
7: Right. Okay. so then you mentioned that this is an awareness program, but also, firstly, it's a it's a fundraising program. So let's get that information out there. How can uh, listeners donate fundraise, uh, participate in this 360 experience, um, how can they go about that?
0: All that information is on our website, 360kids.ca, and there's a link to to donate, there's a link to the experience, and if somebody wants to participate and and help us fundraise, we ask that all fundraisers raise a minimum of $2,000. We have a lofty goal of $125,000, and so that really is a it comes from individuals who are approaching their friends businesses who are able to to meet that minimum $2000 threshold And if you know somebody like myself who's participating, you can sponsor them as well. There are different opportunities to do that. But you can go directly to our website and uh, click on the icon for the 360 Experience 2019, and it's all there.
7: Perfect. Okay, and before I let you go, Clovis, let us know about um, 360 Kids and uh, what the organization does and, of course, where people can go for more information.
0: Great. Yeah, Uh, the organization is uh, in its 30th year, so we've been around for 30 years, and Really, um, our, our focus is in, in four key areas. Uh, first of all, we do work from a prevention framework. So all that means is we don't want young people to be homeless in the first place. And so uh, the, the program areas are all have that as our base. So we have education as one of our, our main um, support areas. Um, Employment is another area of of support, so we provide a a range of employment programs for our young people to help them understand the the labor market, get their first job, prepare resumes, and uh, give them uh, labor market experience. So that's a really big part of our work, Um, and housing, housing is, without housing, you'll Always be homeless. So housing is an important portfolio of ours, and we have a range of housing programs from emergency housing. Uh, we provide the only housing emergency um, shelter, emergency housing in the south part of York Region, and and it's fourteen beds. So it's not a lot, um, but we do provide other housing supports such as transitional housing. Uh, we have. Uh, scattered site housing. Uh, We call it part of our transitions program where we um, may uh, renovate or take out leases uh, for houses for young people. They can stay for up to three years and they learn how to be more and more independent and, um, you know, become more um, self-sufficient that way. So, Housing is a huge portfolio, and uh, we also have housing programs for those who are victims or survivors of human trafficking. So housing is really important to us, is is the point there. And the third area, and really important, is uh, our support programs. Uh, without those supports, young people will always be at risk. And so that means we try to find um, ways of supporting them with uh, their housing, how to access housing. Uh, we provide counseling services and supports to them because sometimes that's really what they need to address the trauma in their lives. We we provide um, transitional support so that you know when when they do get housing that they 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 the issues that um might um lead them to to a breakdown in their housing or even their employment that we provide those kinds of supports and so uh, housing employment education and supports those are our key program areas and and that's what the organization does and you know we we what we don't want to do is build our way we we know that we can't build our way out of homelessness there there just isn't enough money but with the help of our community Uh, We we can actually find solutions. And one of the signature programs that we have is our Night Stop program. That's an example of how uh, leveraging um, families, individuals or hosts in the communities who have empty beds in, in their house, such as somebody who is an empty nester. Uh, they can actually take in a youth. We provide them some training and some support. Perfect marriage because you've got young people who've got a family atmosphere and uh, you've got housing in the community uh, that that supports them. And we're not building more shelters because that's really not the answer. But it's the community coming together. So the 360 experience is all about community. It's a community coming together and and finding ways to support our young people. And we're part of the community. We'll do our part. We ask the community to to help us help our young people.
7: Clovis, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today.
0: That's right. Every kid matters.
3: You're listening to The Feed on 105.9 The Region. I'm Station Manager Tina Cortez. If you missed any part of our show, go to 105.9TheRegion.com for replay. Over to Jim Lang now and a unique fundraiser
1: for Alzheimer's. You know, more than half a million Canadians are living with dementia or Alzheimer's or some kind of dementia-related disease in Canada. The Alzheimer's Society of Canada also figured that number will double in 15 years. That's why I'm thrilled to be speaking to someone I've dealt with before, A passionate hockey fan, a passionate referee and official, he's uh, refereed some charity events I've been part of. Steve McNeil is traveling across Canada, skating for 19 hours and 26 minutes in each of Canada's NHL cities, raising awareness and money for local Alzheimer's society. Steve, it's a real honor to have you on today in the feed.
8: How are you today, my friend?
1: I'm good, I'm good. Now, before we get into some of the cool things that have happened in your journey to raise awareness and funds for Alzheimer's, how did this come to be that you were doing this incredible skate marathon to raise money for Alzheimer's?
8: Well, I've been doing the skate now in Toronto for the last seven years, which you're aware of because you've actually helped me out a little bit. I said, uh, I said to my wife about eight months ago, I said, you know, this is the seventh year, there's seven teams in the, in the country, and this is really starting to take a hold on our country, so we've got to pick it up. So I started talking to some people that support me back in Toronto and asked them if there was a good idea, and everybody kind of liked the idea, so... We ran with it, and uh, this is the seventh of seven city- cities. I'm in Winnipeg right now.
1: I know, Steve. You, you, I mean, the reception is building in each and every one. Uh, what is the, the response and comments you get from people who come out to see you, to come out to donate, to come out to show you support at all your skates?
8: Uh, I get comments from all kinds of people, all kinds of comments. So a lot of the times, it's people that are finding ab- about me when I get into these cities through the media. And they'll come out and they'll tell me their horror story, so to speak, of their mom or their dad or their grandma or their grandpa. And that, I'm good with that. That's actually the exciting part is I've become a bit of a sounding board for people. And once people start talking to me and they realize that I've been down that same road as them with my mom and my, my mother-in-law, it makes them a little more comfortable. And some of these people don't have the opportunity to to, to say what's on their mind and to somebody that understands. So it's a pretty thrilling part of it for me, actually.
1: Well, Steve, I mean, the impact you're making in the battle against Alzheimer's and dementia-related diseases is reaching far beyond the Canadian borders. Uh, none other than Angus Young, the genius behind AC/DC, and his people reached out to you. Of course, Malcolm Young, Angus's older brother, passed away from dementia in 2017. He was only 64, and lo and behold, they reached out to your organization to donate money.
8: Yes, they did yesterday, actually. It's been Uh, An amazing 24 hours for me. Uh, Yesterday morning, I was contacted from uh, one of the media in Calgary that covered me when I was there on the weekend. I did Calgary and Edmonton back-to-back on the weekend. I figured Battle of Alberta, I'll do them back-to-back. Yeah. um, When I did my Calgary skate, uh, um, the CBC reporter did a piece on me there, and apparently Angus and his wife were flipping through, uh, I guess, the internet or whatever, and they came across the piece on me, and it's kind of hard to miss me because I wear ACBC pants when I'm skating. Yeah. And, uh, um, which you're aware of. You've seen me. Yeah, yeah I know. I love them. And, I, uh, <laughs> and, and, and uh, apparently they, they contacted me yesterday and I was completely blown away. Four years ago, I started listening to only ACBC when I do my skates as a, as a tribute to Malcolm Young, who again, as you said, passed in 2017 complications, complications of dementia. So that's when I decided I was going to do all ACBC. And I mean, it's easy for me. I, I love the band for for most of my life. I saw them by accident in 1978. I, n- I never really thought it would come to this, but yeah, I was contacted yesterday by ACDC's management group, and they wanted to make a sizable donation. So they've donated nineteen thousand two hundred and sixty dollars um, to 1926 gate and I'm, I'm just completely flattered by that.
1: Now, when you first got contacted by ACDC's management, were you a little, was it like, do you think someone was pranking you at first? I mean, what was your reaction?
8: You know what? I was contacted by the media person first because they actually contacted the person that wrote the article. And she phoned me at 7 o'clock yesterday morning. And um, yeah, you know what? As I've explained to a few people since then, it's like winning an emotional lottery. I haven't, my head hasn't come up out of the clouds yet. And again, I don't do it. I don't do it for that okay Um, I skate to try and take a little pressure off some of the families in our country that are battling with this disease but for everything that I do it's it's really 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 nice that somebody like him has noticed what I'm doing because I do this tribute with ACDC with music as a tribute to his brother because I know how much he probably misses his brother being his best
1: friend growing up here here speaking with Steve McNeil who is doing incredible work raising awareness and funds in the battle against Alzheimer's and dementia-related diseases, you can get involved with the hashtag 1926, the number 1926, 1926 skate, after the year of the birth of, I know, your mother, uh, That everything that went on. And um, now, I know that ACDC has reached out and given a donation. Through the tour, through the hashtag, through social media, are you finding people you never even met or, or heard of or donating time and money to help the cause? Oh, yeah.
8: Uh, by I mean, People from all over the world all of a sudden have started donating to the cause. And the way I've set this set, Seven City Tour up, it's a Seven City Challenge. I'm challenging to see which Canadian NHL city is going to raise the most money and awareness for their Alzheimer's Society. So each city has their own link set up. And if you go on my website at 1926gate.com, all seven links are hooked up there. So you can donate to whichever link you want. All those links are going to stay open until the night they raise the Stanley Cup. The night they raise the Stanley Cup, we will announce on our website exactly which Canadian team raised the most money. So there's lots of time for all these other cities that I've skated in, for anybody who's listening to jump on board. I ask people to donate $19.26 in honor of anybody that they may know in the past or in, in the present that's battling this ugly disease.
1: Well, I mean, Steve, we're four months away probably from the Stanley Cup being awarded, so plenty of time for people listening, for people all across Canada and the world, to get on 1926 com, donate that $19.26 and help this uh, the fight against this horrible disease. Also, the hashtag 1926skate. I don't know, maybe there might be other bands and other celebrities that uh, follow Angus Young's uh, model and donate some big money. I don't know, but I mean, of all the... That's
8: if, what we're betting on. That's I, what we're betting on. If, if I could just say one yeah, more Yeah, thing, by but, all things, Steve... Uh, in all seven cities, I have a different yellow hoodie made up that I wear in each city, and I have any local celebrities that come out, any local politicians, and just people that skate with me. And I have them all sign my hoodie, and at the end of each skate, I take the hoodie off and I present it to the Alzheimer's Society of that city. So now after today, all seven Canadian NHL cities will have their hoodies in their cities at their Alzheimer's Society. I'm hoping and I'm praying that the NHL teams will jump on board. And I've left the back of the hoodies open for them to sign. And each hoodie will be sold online by the prospective Alzheimer's societies across the country. There is only one per city. There is no extras. There's no duplicates, nothing. One hoodie per city, and they'll go online. So I'm hoping the NHL clubs will jump on board and we can make arrangements through each one that they can contact their local Alzheimer's and we can
1: get this done. 1926gate.com, the hashtag 1926gate. Steve, I remember meeting you. You were an official. I was in a game with Bernie Nichols yep. and played against a team with Doug Gilmore, and you were refereeing, and you kind of skated up to me and, and mentioned this. and went, wow. And then I've seen how it's grown and what you've done, and I am so darn proud of you, Steve, and the lengths that you have gone to raise mon- funds and awareness and raise money in the battle against Alzheimer. I am just, um, I'm touched that you were able to do this today. I'm so proud of you.
8: You know what, it's people like you, Jim, that you know, for, for, we've known each other now for four or five years. Oh, you know, at least, yeah. Baycrest and stuff, and it's people like you and some of the alumni that have come out to help me in Toronto, and Nick Antropoff, and Brian Muir, and Mike krusel and Carolyn Cameron, and people have really jumped on board. So I've, that's why I decided to take it across Canada, and, and the response has been overwhelming. But since Angus and the boys jumped on board yesterday, it's been off the charts. It's been literally off the charts.
1: Steve, you should be darn so, proud of what you're doing. I know there's a lot of people listening proud of you as well. Keep up the good fight. Let's keep raising money till the day the Stanley Cup's awarded at nineteen twenty six skate dot com and let's fight this stupid disease once and for all.
8: All right. I'm in Winnipeg right now. I step on the ice tonight at five PM at the forks in Winnipeg, right by the train station. I'll skate until twelve twenty six tomorrow afternoon and then I will be complete my seven cities and I get to head back to Toronto.
1: Okay, where's some long underwear, Steve? It might get cold tonight. <laughs>
8: Actually, you know what? We 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 we've been setting new weather records. We set the weather record in Toronto two years ago at minus twenty-seven, and then last Saturday it was, or uh, January twelfth, it was crushed in Montreal at minus twenty-nine, and then last Saturday that was broken in Calgary in a snowstorm at minus thirty-three, and then Monday in Edmonton we blew it right out of the water at minus forty. So yeah, it's actually two pairs of long johns, Jim.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Steve. It's a real pleasure. All the best, and keep going.
8: All right, right. I'll see you on the ice soon, buddy.
1: We'll see you on the ice. Take care. All right, man, bye. Bye.
3: This is The Feed on 105.9 The Region. Our next stop takes us to the world of podcasting, and joining us is the author of Let's Talk Podcasting, The Essential Guide to Doing It Right, Amanda Capito. Amanda, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. And congratulations. The book is a bestseller on Amazon. Way to go. Thank you. Yes, I'm I'm really happy that people are gravitating towards the book and finding it useful. Okay, so let's start you know, let's start with a step back for our listeners and what is podcasting?
9: So podcasting is has been around for quite a while, but it's been becoming more and more popular in the last couple of years. Um, it actually first originated around two thousand and four, two thousand and five, and the word itself podcasting comes from iPod, so an Apple product, and broadcasting. So that's where pod casting comes from and around that time Apple was making, it, uh, making a, pe- people able to use audio files publish them and broadcast themselves. So now the actual definition of a podcast though is something that has an RSS feed which uh, people can subscribe to and regularly get updates, get these audio file updates and these audio files can be anything. Sometimes they're just one person talking, sometimes they're a roundtable discussion and sometimes they're fully produced mini musicals so they really range and what they look like.
3: And are you a podcast producer yourself?
9: Yes. So I don't have my own podcast, but I love to produce for other people. And so that's how I got started in the industry. I've been producing podcasts um, for almost 10 years now. And so right when they were becoming popular, I was working in radio at the time and I had a lot of people reaching out to me um, and because there's a lot of transferable skills and the storytelling is at its foundation very similar. And so I started to produce podcasts back then, but um, now I've really transitioned to monitoring the industry. Um, And after 2014, which is what we call the new wave of podcasting, um, there was a lot of shifts in the landscape because there was a very popular one called Serial that was released and broke all sorts of records and kind of gave it this popularity that has now snowballed to what we're seeing today, which is why there's so much interest around podcasts.
3: So let's talk a little bit about the book. Let's talk podcasting, the essential guide to doing it right. Why did you want to write a book about it?
9: Well, I always loved podcasts and I thought that they were um a great way of doing audio storytelling, but um I was actually just giving a presentation about podcasts and there was a publisher in the audience who came up to me after and said, "This is a book, you should write it." I didn't even think to write one to be honest originally and um so uh I'm really happy that I connected with PPS Publishing and my publisher Doris really encouraged me to to get down my thoughts and she's a big proponent of Female thought leaders, and so uh, this was a foray into that into that area and writing a nonfiction book about podcasting.
3: So, without giving away too much, what are some of the essentials that someone who wants to produce a podcast should know?
9: Well, I think that there's two groups of people out there. There are those who are very intimidated by the space; um, they don't really know anything about podcasting, and maybe they're interested, but they just don't even know where to begin. Um, and then on the other end, there's people who think it's really easy and they've heard one podcast maybe or a couple podcasts before and they just think that they can emulate and they want to dive right in and they're very excited. But both, are, you know, are great, but in the end of the day, my goal is to bring these two people together, these two ends of the spectrum, and help people understand that it's a very accessible medium, but there's also a lot of thought that needs to go into them um, if you want to do them properly. And so. What I try to say is step one is just really think about what you want to talk about and how is the best way to present that information. And so there are a lot of different formats and genres out there, and you might have heard one or two podcasts that you really like, but given the information and the audiences you're trying to reach and the information you're trying to share, um, you might need to come up with your own format. And so I'm really trying to encourage people to to do that foundational thinking first before they dive in, um, and then that will then dictate what equipment you should buy and how often you should publish and all of these other tactical things that people tend to get caught up with right off the, right off the bat. Now, in terms of equipment
3: and without getting too technical, do you have to be uh, a technical wizard to make this happen for
9: yourself? Definitely not. Um, The beauty of podcasting is that it's really accessible, and depending how much money and time and how interested you are in in the technical side of things, you can really, there's a range of of what you can commit. And so it's as simple as, you know, our, our smartphones have really great recorders on it, and so if you wanted to record a podcast just straight to your phone or straight to your computer using the internal audio, you definitely can. If you want to put down a little bit of money and get a more professional sounding uh mic, then you could spend about 50 to 100 bucks and get a simple mic that plugs into your computer or an, an attachment for your phone. Um, but then of course it rate it goes up in in uh you know quality from there and the mics I use are a couple hundred bucks, but that's the ones that fit well for me and what I'm trying to do. But there really is quite a range, making it really accessible for people. Even just to start out, doing it for free, very easy. And then if you like it and it works, you can invest from there.
3: And can you share with us and our audience, um, uh, what are some of your favorite podcasts out there?
9: Yeah, I have a lot of favorites. I'm listening to podcasts all the time. But my go-tos, one is from the New York Times. It's called Modern Love. And this is one where they actually, and I love the the format of it. They take the essay; it's actually a, a column in the New York Times, and they take that essay that's published, and they get an actor to read one essay that they feel connected to, and then they soundscape the whole thing, adding you know sound effects to really bring it to life. So it's almost like an audio book meets a podcast, and then they have a discussion um, with the author and sometimes the actor as well as why that essay resonated and. Why it was uh, a meaningful one, and so these cover stories of love in all regards, including platonic and romantic and so uh, and it 's a good one to it's I like to use the word evergreen," which maybe some people are familiar with it 's a podcast that never really um it's it's timeless. You could pop in and listen to an episode and enjoy it just the same way it 's released or a year later, so that 's usually my go to and then Gimlet is a production house that makes a lot of great podcasts, so pretty much anything that Gimlet produces. I've been a huge fan of.
3: And where do you see podcasting going from here? Because now it seems to be a lot more mainstream, shall we say? So where does it go from here?
9: Yeah, so there's three things that I tell people to look out for. Um, Number one is branded podcasts, which are podcasts that are actually made from companies and brands that are trying to create content that is just accessible and enjoyable for people to listen to, and it doesn't sound like a giant ad, but it does align with their business values, so it's a win-win for audiences and businesses who are trying to promote their brand or maybe um, have some keywords connected to their brand. And so we're seeing companies like Interact come out with podcasts, and Mozilla, um, and Facebook just came out with a podcast. And so, you know, these big brands are moving more towards spending their marketing dollars in creating podcasts, branded podcasts. And I think we're going to see more and more of those. Um, Number two, more live events and conferences. Right now we're seeing podcasts that come to a stage and perform live for people, which really takes this intimate medium and brings it to a whole new level. We're seeing, you know, full concert halls and stadiums being sold out which is amazing. Um, And you'll have the host reading a script with clips being played and sometimes the music is even played live and there's a a full musical orchestra that's that's doing the scoring on the spot. So it's a really neat way um, to bring podcasts to life. Um, And the third one is is moving along with wearable technology and 360 video and VR, um, I predict we're going to be seeing that with podcasts and audio. So having devices that allow us to be spatially aware of audio and, and uh, really having an immersive experience with a podcast where you'll be able to feel like something's really far away from you or coming, a sound is coming from over your head, right, and, and feeling like that 360 VR experience but with audio.
3: That all sounds so great. So if our listeners want to connect with you or pick up a copy of Let's Talk Podcasting, where can they go?
9: So easiest place for the book is letstalkpodcasting.com. It's available on Amazon, indigo.ca, in select stores, um, but the website has all that information. And if you'd like to connect with me, you can go to amandacapito.com, which is Amanda and Capito is C-U-P-I-D-O.com. Amanda,
3: thank you for joining us on the feed. Thank you. Joining us next on the feed is entertainment editor from What She Said, Ann Brody. Thanks for being here. Hey, Tina. My pleasure. And we're talking Oscars. It's Oscar weekend. The Oscars are set for Sunday night. Let's go through some of the categories and some of your faves, some of your picks. Let's talk about Best Actress. What do you think?
2: Well, I think it's going to be a catfight between Glenn Close for The Wife and Olivia Coleman from The Favourite. So Lady Gaga not even in the running? No, no. She can't act. She can sing. I will give her that. She can sing The Roof Off, but she's not an actor. And it's quite clear in A Star is Born.
3: And do you think this is going to be the time for Glenn Close finally? She was brilliant. She was crystalline in this film. In the wife.
2: As the the wife of the Nobel Prize winner who supported him and, and let her own career fall to the side in order to support him. And you just see this rising anger, these... Years of resentment and frustration coming to the fore. It's,
3: it's almost exhilarating. So you think she's going to be the one?
2: I th- Well, I still think it's 50-50 between the two of them. Likely, though, being that it's an American body, Okay. the Oscars. And what about Olivia? You mentioned her in the film that she's in. The favorite. She plays Queen Anne. She's really uggled up, and she does incredibly outrageous things. Jorgos Lanth- uh, Lanthimos, who made the film, also made The Lobster a couple of years back. Very unusual. The whole thing is shot with a fisheye lens <laughs> and everything is bizarre and surreal and weird. And I don't know how that goes over with uh, the conventional Oscar voters, but you must admit that she was just beyond brilliant in it. Her mood swings, her, her not being afraid to look a certain way. Mm-hmm. It's just... Fantastic.
3: All right, let's move on to the best actor category. Let's go through the nominees first.
2: Yes, we have Rami Malek, mm-hmm. who currently is thought to be coming up against everyone else. Mm-hmm. This is in the last runner. couple of days. Right. He's a front runner right now for okay. Bohemian Rap- Bohemian Rhapsody, mm-hmm. and he did a great job. Um, in a way, it's karaoke to me, but he I was so impressed by him, but there's other equally talented people here, equal, equally great performances, but I must say I'm upset that Ethan Hawke wasn't nominated for First Reform because he was stunning, stunning, quiet, restrained, and then boom. And First Reform is not even a movie, frankly, that I've heard about. I know. Very few people have. It's a Paul Schrader film. It's won all kinds of awards over the season since last October, early November. And somehow he fell off this list, and it's it's very disappointing. But, okay, so there's Rami. There is uh, Christian Bale from Vice, who's sort of hidden under this makeup as Dick Cheney. Phenomenal. He's he's phenomenal, and he's able to, to sort of become somebody else. Quite often, there's a lot of makeup involved in his roles, but this is really... He's very good. The movie, eh, not so much. He was great. Then there's Bradley Cooper. (laughs) And there's the silence. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, Yeah, he's fine. He's fine. I just don't even know that a film like A Star Is Born... Even need, needed to be done a fourth iteration of it, mm-hmm. I guess, to to reflect the rock and roll world that we live in now. Right. Um, but I don't think he was too stupendous. I mean, look at Willem Dafoe at *Eternity's Gate*. That was out of this world. A quiet, interior, artistic film. Uh, the the sensibility of being alone, one with nature, and all of that. And then Viggo Mortensen, he was way up there. And now he's fallen in the ranks, which is kind of odd. For Green Book, Mm -hmm. he really did a great characterization. And considering he's Norwegian or Icelandic or something,
3: he's playing a Bronx hood, Yes, kudos. Yeah, absolutely. What a performance and what a great movie I hear. Yeah,
2: it's about friendship and overcoming racism and all the ugly things in the world and really, really struggling to do so.
3: Let's move into the Best Director category.
2: All right. Well, I'm pretty sure... The nominees are? Oh yeah, we've got Alfonso Quaron from Roma, Spike Lee, Black Klansman, awesome film, awesome. It's his best film in centuries. Jorgos Lanthimos for the favorite, Adam McKay for Vice, and Pavel Pawlowski for Cold War, which is a Polish film. And your pick to win? My pick to win is Alfonso, Alfonso Quaron. What a job! I, we were talking earlier, and every he says that every single scene, every shot, is a visual effect, except for one. The sound is circular and it doesn't have that uh, digital hiss or buzz. It's very analog. It's incredibly moving. It's a personal story of of the woman who raised him and his family in Mexico City. Um, And it's just
3: so moving. And do you think that the Academy made a mistake by leaving Bradley out of this category?
2: I... He says he's embarrassed, uh, but I, I, I'm not sure he should have it. I, I didn't like the way the thing was shot. I didn't like a lot about it.
3: Okay, so you're not a huge fan of A Star's I'm really
2: not. I think it's so conventional. The music is fantastic, and it did so well at the Grammys, and I'm happy for it for that
3: way. But to me, it's not a great film. Okay, but they might win for Shallow, do you think? that? Uh, oh, no,
2: no question. No question. No question. All
3: right. Yeah. Let's move into Best Picture category. Who are the
2: nominees? We have Roma, Green Book, Black Klansman, A Star is Born, Black Panther, and Vice. And your pick is? Well, Roma. Roma. <laughs> I know a lot of people haven't seen it. They've heard it's slow. They've heard it's black and white. But just give it a chance. You'll be swept away in this world. It's a movie. Okay, this family is going through crisis. So not only do we have their internal crises, we have an earthquake, we have a forest fire, we have a riot. (laughs) It just never stops. We have a man shooting out of a cannon.
3: It's incredible. Wow. Okay, I've got to give that movie a shot. Please do. Okay. Now, Anne, you've been covering movies and the entertainment scene for many, many years, shall we say. Um, What do you do to get ready for the Oscars? Is there a ritual for you at all?
2: Yeah. I turn the phone off, <laughs> I lock all the doors, <laughs> I close myself off, and I write as I go along. Not for an article, just for myself. And I just drink it in, see how they the Oscars differ from all the other awards.
3: And how so, do they differ from all the other awards?
2: They're more conventional, generally. Mm-hmm. Something like the BAFTAs takes a lot of chances. The Independent Spirit Awards is great. You know, They, ha- they are all over Ethan's Hawk, may I say. And uh, the Golden Globes is very populist. So it's a whole sort of older, white male, conventional
3: spin at the
2: Oscars. So, you know, it'll be fun. It'll be great to see the dresses.
3: Absolutely. Always fun to watch. Always fun to talk to Anne Brody. Thank you for joining us. Tina. That's our show for this week. If you missed any part of the feed, head over to our website, 1059theregion.com. I'm Tina Cortez. Thanks for listening.